1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of
0: listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Mark Raboy about his new biography of the Italian inventor and businessman, Guglielmo Marconi, entitled Marconi, The Man Who Networked the World. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Mark Raboy about his new biography of the Italian inventor and businessman, Guglielmo Marconi, entitled Marconi, The Man Who Networked the World. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, um, I was uh, initially a journalist. I worked in um, newspapers and uh, briefly for public broadcasting in Canada, and uh, then eventually um, found myself uh, recycling into academic life um, with regard to media and communication. So I've been a um, university teacher and researcher since 1980 and um, developed um, some degree of specialization in media and communication policy, and that is actually how I came to this subject. Um, About 15 years ago, I was doing some research on the origins of radio regulation, and I found that the further back I went, the more I kept tripping over the name of Marconi and his company. Um, And actually, when I discovered that Um, the very first international conference on radio in 1903 had actually been called with the express purpose of preventing Marconi and his company from getting a global monopoly on wireless communication. Um, I felt that there was something worth looking into here. Now, I should say that um, having uh, grown up in Montreal, Canada, uh, Marconi was kind of Uh, A name that kept cropping up, that cropped up regularly uh, through my um, early life, and I just to open a a bracket here. I also found that this is I'm I'm not unique in this regard. I mean, there you know, people all over the world. When I was doing my research and so I was what I was working on, everybody has a local Marconi story, of one kind or another. In, um, well, in my case, uh, it actually um, starts out really in early childhood when um, my family moved into uh, a a new house on the edge of uh, a part of Montreal where there actually was a Marconi factory and we could see this from um, the kitchen window of of the house I was growing up in and I was, you know, this is the early 50s, I was five years old at the time and I probably had never seen a factory before probably didn't have much idea what they did there, but I saw this neon light that we could see from our kitchen window and it was the only one and it said Marconi. And in our house, we had a little yellow plastic box the same name on it, Marconi. This was the radio set. Um, This was was just the very, very early days. Television was just getting started. We didn't have a television set. And so the radio was quite important. And I somehow made this connection. I never (laughs) thought at the time um, what it would actually lead to 50 years later. Um, But um, uh, the Marconi company actually was a very important Uh, radio broadcaster in Canada. Uh, Marconi's Canadian subsidiary had started the first Canadian commercial radio station in 1919 and they actually uh, have something of a claim, a rivalry really between um, uh, Marconi's Montreal station and uh, the Westinghouse station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Both claim to have been the first radio station um, in um, in the world. And well, let's leave that aside. But the point <laughs> is that, um, uh, that, uh, uh, as I was growing up, of course, you know, we listened to the radio and whenever uh, they were doing just, you know, their self-promotion, it was always, this is CFCF radio, the Marconi station and in, um, in Montreal. And, um, this went on really till the late 1960s when, uh, the Canadian government, um, brought in, um, uh, foreign ownership restrictions in radio and broadcasting, and the Marconi company, which was a british owned company um, was obliged to uh, to sell their assets to um, to uh, canadian investors and so that was that was the end of that but so as I say fast forward then so when I discovered later on as a uh, an academic researcher that um, there was you know this really powerful Marconi connection in the early days of radio around the turn of the 20th century. I started looking into it a little bit more deeply. And then there was one of those things which are really, you know, kind of serendipitous occurrences that you hear about. Around the time that I was just beginning to get interested in this, I discovered completely by accident that there were uh, some important archives just opening um, to... uh, just becoming accessible to researchers in Oxford, England, where um, the Marconi Company, uh, which had been based, which was based in England, um, in the early 2000s, uh, decided they wanted to um, get rid of uh, all their their, their accumulated. Um, uh, a lot of paper, basically, uh, that had been accumulated going back to the very, very early days of the company. And um, these archives ended up in Oxford. I, I happened to be um, in London in, in the fall of 2008, and, and, and I and I read somewhere that, that the, these archives were opening up. And I went down to Oxford and had a look. And I spoke to the archivist and said, um, you know, if I wanted to work in these archives, how much time do you think it would take? And he said, um, "How much time do you have?" And <laughs> that was that. That in itself uh, kind of sparked my interest, and and so I, I made a few incursions to the archive. And at that point, I still wasn't thinking of writing a biography. I was thinking more of writing, um, you know, a, a policy uh, history paper on you know where did radio regulation come from? Maybe using the Marconi company as the peg. Lo and behold, there in the archives were Marconi's personal diaries, um, all kinds of private papers, scraps and fragments of love letters, um, his 1923 application form to join the Italian fascist party, and all kinds of things, which was really incredible. It was a a treasure trove of personal papers. And um, I started to uh, look around to see what kind of uh, biographical material was out there. I couldn't believe that no one had done this before. And sure enough, there were a number of Marconi biographies already written, but all of them were incomplete in one way or another. The the best Marconi biography um, is one written by his eldest daughter in the early 1960s, which really probed into... um, some of the personality aspects of her father and there was a lot of kind of family anecdotal detail there but that was obviously it was a daughter's memoir so it's not 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 really a a full-fledged biography and there were other biographies written by um, colleagues Uh, his uh, second wife who became his widow eventually wrote a memoir as well Um, and there were uh, a number of attempts to write independent biographies but they were they were all limited by ha- uh, having had access to only a part of the story. Um, there were actually two biographies in English that were written while Marconi was still alive, and he made very sure to keep a hand in those those projects. I mean, this was in the 1930s, and the authors wanted to have uh, his approval, and and he. Um, begrudgingly gave it, but, you know, posing certain conditions, like there were certain topics that he didn't want covered or he wanted treated in a certain way. And and the authors, you know, this was pretty much, you know, the spirit of the times, they, 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 they acquiesced. So they were incomplete in that regard. They were also incomplete in the regard that they only covered the, um, uh, let's say, the, 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 the British-American, the, the, the Anglo side of Marconi of Marconi's life, because as you mentioned in your introduction, um, he was Italian. He was actually half Italian. Um, many people don't realize uh, that Marconi, of course, his father was Italian. He was born and grew up in Italy, but his mother um, was Irish. His mother was Annie Jameson, uh, a, a member of the uh, famous Jameson-Whiskey family. And, um, and this is this was a very important element in his upbringing and in his eventual uh, launch uh, the launch of his of his business career. You I'm actually slightly ahead of,
0: sorry. You actually mentioned that at the end of the book, a conversation you had with another Marconi biographer, where he asks you the question: Do you regard Marconi as Italian or British? And the, the conversation you described where, where you give uh, your uh, uh, impression and he gives his. Shows the degree to which he did have this very fascinating duality
1: absolutely, absolutely uh, and and, and um, yes, this was the um, uh, while I was w- working on the book, I actually had an encounter in one of the archives in Rome with uh, with, with this the most recent uh, Italian biographer of Marconi um, who uh, who published in two thousand and thirteen a very good journalistic um, book. Um, uh, account of of marconi 's life and and yeah, and we met an, a, a number of times and and we had completely different perceptions of who he was um, and 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 this is really it is, this is fundamental to to who he was this elusiveness that he he both he suffered from it psychologically and he used it to his advantage um, Marconi always felt himself an outsider where wherever he was um you know when he was growing up in Italy um the 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 the, 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 the the children he played with, you know his schoolmates used to tease him and call him the little Englishman because he spoke Italian with a slight English accent, you know, having had two mother tongues basically mm-hmm. um from from childhood and of course, later in life when he when he went to England, even though he established himself and he became a very very prominent person, he was well he was never quite he was never really english he wasn't british he was um he was uh, an outsider and um he so he was constantly looking for a, a home and at the same time he was tremendously restless he kept moving and uh, this too was um, uh, a very important characteristic of what drove him to keep developing and perfecting you know what we now call mobile communication yes. it was it was something that um that uh, he wanted to have available to him. Um, you know, I mean, the the the, uh, the the last years of his life, he spent primarily living on a yacht and uh, moving around constantly. And he was very, very careful, always to be equipped with the latest communication equipment, so that he could keep in touch with whoever he wanted to, it's, you know, it's as wherever though, he was.
0: It's as though the the inventions itself of 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 radio that he popularizes is a manifestation of himself something that's not bound by borders something that's not easily defined within a certain geographical area it's kind of you know everywhere a lot of different places uh, and 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 yet not necessarily a, a tangibly rooted in, in, in a particular locale
1: absolutely um, Marconi had a very strong personal motivation for um, for what he was doing and I'm not sure to what extent he actually was consciously aware of that, because you know he was able to detach himself from um, from what he was working on, but he still he had this vision and belief and conviction that it was possible, you know, using the newly discovered radio waves, that it was possible to connect any point on earth to any other point without wires while you were moving and um and this was really what he wanted to do he wanted to keep moving and be in touch and and so he kept working on this and perfecting it and um you know he didn't have any formal training so uh, he wasn't burdened by Academic theory of, by 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 the the leading um, theories of the day, and in fact, uh, the scientists when when Marconi uh, first appeared on the scene with with his uh, system for uh, communicating without wires, uh, academic physics said, "Well, this is very interesting, but it's, it really isn't going to have any practical value. It's very it's experimentally interesting. Let's see what we might do with it." But when Marconi said, "Well," No, but I, I want to. I want to make connections. I want to connect places. I want to. I want to. You know, send signals between London and New York and so on. Well, they they laughed at him. They said this is impossible. No, this it just can't be done. They they actually at first paid no attention to him. Um, but he, um, you know, once once he created a base for himself, um, he kept working at this, and he kept at first um, gradually increasing the distance over which he was able to communicate until finally, I mean, his great um, breakthrough was when, when he sent a, uh, a signal across the Atlantic in 1901, and then, well, I mean, people just had to take him seriously, even though they didn't understand how he had done it, and he himself would say, I I don't really know how this happens <laughs> but 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 I'm doing it and he was and um, um you know he was he was uh, um maybe being a bit a bit naive or um, disingenuous but he, he 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 didn't fully understand the theory of what he was doing but he was but he understand he understood the practicality he understood um how he had to go about um uh, perfecting this system and and f- during the first let's say twenty years or so while he was working, it really depended on um, higher and higher uh, um, transmitters and uh, more and more powerful electric currents and that was actually a limitation because at a certain point it became simply it became uh too technically um uh, difficult to sustain the power necessary to, uh, let's say, uh, send uh, a, a signal from uh, Europe to Australia, and it would, would it, it couldn't be um, uh, very viable economically either. And that was this was the second phase, if you will, of Marconi's um, uh, innovation, which is when he developed when he when he, when he Discovered that by using short waves rather than long waves, he could overcome uh, these uh, these limitations because um, short waves, radio waves at the short end of the spectrum, uh, have the capacity to cover uh, to uh, to travel at the speed of light and to cover um, basically any distance using a very a very low amount of uh, electrical generative power and so on and this is what this was the, the what what ultimately um made made uh global instantaneous wireless communication possible i,
0: I want to uh, but i, I want to c- uh come back to that in a little bit I actually want to go back a bit and uh kind of talk a bit more about his early years his upbringing and and and, and how he came to uh develop radio what what was his uh, family like
1: well um marconi's Mar- his his father's family uh, the, the was a um we might, we might call them nouveau riche today i mean they were they were it, uh, i mean Mar- Marconi's grandfather uh, on his father's side was the first person in his family uh, to read and write and he, uh, and consequently, um, he became, you know, rather prosperous locally in the area around, uh, Bologna and north central Italy, uh, where he, um, did all kinds of um, uh, business dealings and and was able to you know accumulate um, uh, uh, a small respectable amount of of, of wealth and then um, his sons Marconi's Marconi's father and his uncles um, built that up a bit a bit further so that they were they were relatively prosperous uh, locally and um, you know we're talking about. The period just before Marconi's birth. I mean, he was born in 1874, so we're talking about the 1850s and 1860s, which was a time of great political upheaval um, in Italy, and uh, and when um, the modern Italian state uh, was um, was born uh, after 1870. um, Marconi's family was. Very politically astute, and they, you know, wanted to be sure that they were on the side of the emerging political power. And again, this is this is this is something that was not lost on Marconi himself, because mm-hmm. this is something that he he maintained throughout his life, always associating himself with whoever was um, was in political power. And so they were they were um, uh, they they were certainly. Uh, comfortable, Marconi could have probably lived out his life as a landed gentleman, um, basically overseeing the management of of uh, an inheritance i mean he, he his his father um, Marconi grew up in a in a villa uh, ten miles south of the city of bologna that uh, that was purchased that the family had purchased. Um, uh, sometime before Marconi's birth, and so you know, there's a very substantial uh, manor house and a lot of land around it, which was being um, farmed by uh, basically, you might call them tenant farmers. Um, and uh, so uh, he he was he he grew up in a society where uh, he would have either gone into um, into the Navy or um, uh, as as a form of as a form of schooling or a possible career or gone into the um, the, the family business um, but as a child he showed no capacity for conventional schooling and yet at the same time he had this um, tremendous interest in um, tinkering with um and newfangled uh, bits of uh, uh, electrical materials and so on. And um, his mother encouraged him in what what he was doing. His father was very concerned that, you know, the lad might never amount to anything and... What was he doing? Spending all his time um, locked away in a room in the the attic of this of this manor when uh, other young boys uh, his age were out um, chasing girls or whatever young boys do. <laughs> um, and um, so, he as a as a teenager he was he was. Uh, you know, he was like like the kind of computer geeks that we hear about today, working in their parents' garages and tinkering with things. And and um, um, but you know, Marconi was he was also at the right place at the right time. I mean, that was that, that was something that he, he he had good fortune in the sense that while he was working away at um, you know trying to Meant something or other. He didn't have a very clear idea at first. Uh, he he used to read voraciously the the, the, the um, popular magazines of the time. I mean, there were there were um, and he also read um, um, English, which was very uh, helpful to what he was doing. So he would he he would read the you know the British and American magazines about the latest discover, discoveries in electricity, and that's where he learnt. Of the, the, the discovery, um, in the mid 1880s, of what we now call radio waves, um, by a German uh, physicist by the name of Heinrich Hertz. I mean, this is why you know people may be aware of the term um, um, Hertzian waves, or you know, we measure we measure radio waves in megahertzes and so on and so forth. Anyway, this is be that as it may. Marconi read of the um, the discovery of these radio waves. And um, this was quite quite a, a, an amazing thing in um, uh, in science in the 1880s, and 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 people all over the world were beginning to look for uh, some kind of uses for these waves, or simply to experiment with them and see what their characteristics were. Um, they were they were uh, thought to be. And they were actually the basis for um, light and what we see and optics and so on. And um, it was only a, a little bit later or somehow on the margin of this that that there was also an, an emerging awareness that, um, uh, that uh, sound could travel through these waves as well. But what Marconi was initially doing... Um, was trying to uh, replicate what the telegraph could do without wires. So he set himself up with a Morse code tapper, and he um, managed to, uh, by generating a fairly small electrical spark, uh, he managed to elicit a response in a receiver Across the room that he was working in. So, in other words, he would he, he he tapped on his Morse code tapper, and across the room there was a response. And when he did this in his, his father's attic at the age of twenty or so, he really he he was taken with the the notion that this is something that would be able to be to 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 do um, uh, connecting any point and any other point. And it was just going to be a matter of perfecting this this system. Now, if we put ourselves in the context of the time, the dominant technology, the new technology of the day, was the telegraph. I mean, the telegraph had come into um, its own in the 1830s and 1840s, and by the time um, Marconi was working, um, there, there was... Um, there were very, very well developed uh, telegraph uh, lines and systems, um, not only within the countries of the uh, advanced industrial world at the time, but also um, there were transatlantic cables. There were um, so tele- so long distance communication was already a reality, um, but it was tied to. The wires and it was tied to the places where wires could go, and uh, it was subject to the vulnerability that the the, the cables could could break. They could become um, defective, or in time of war they could be cut. And um, there were uh, various efforts going on, particularly in um, Britain, the United States, and in Germany. In other words, the countries that were that but saw a military or a geopolitical interest um, in this. There were efforts going on to try to develop ways to um, do telegraphy without wires. But no one before Marconi had the idea of using the newly discovered radio waves to do this. And that's what um, actually created the breakthrough. Because it was it was possible, and it had been demonstrated that one could send messages across very short distances wirelessly you know, using with, using various techniques. But it wasn't it wasn't a practical system. It wasn't something that could that could actually um, uh, that one could see replacing or replicating what the what the wired telegraph was able to do because. If, if you consider that at the time, um, international travel, transcontinental travel, was primarily uh, at sea. Well, you know, if you, if you were traveling, if you were crossing the Atlantic on a ship, you were going to be out of contact for at least a week. And so that was a limitation. If you were, if, if you were operating a navy... As um, the British and the Germans were doing, for example, at the time. Well, then you couldn't communicate between your be, be, between ships, um, or simply for a more um, a mundane commercial or personal purposes. Um, you couldn't. It was very difficult to communicate between um, a, a mainland and an, an offshore island, uh, where, it, for one reason or another, it might be. Um, might um, like not be feasible to, to lay cables. I mean, the Hawaiian Islands, for example, I mean, this is one of the first places where the Marconi Company had a contract uh, was, to, uh, was to, create, to, to, to set up connections, uh, be, uh, connecting the Hawaiian Islands wirelessly in the late 1890s. So um, Marconi, working in his, in his father's attic in Italy, had, had developed this embryonic system that and was at that point... That both his father and his mother realized that there was something here his father saw the, the commercial possibilities for it but there wasn't much you know in Italy in the 1890s that this was not an environment for um, you know setting up the type of company that would be um, uh, helpful for um, exploiting something like what Marconi had done they thought of offering. The invention to the Italian government, and they were advised by um, people close to the family who were who had connections in government that this would not be a wise thing to do um, because of the political context and so on. And then they had the idea: of why not go to why not go to England, where where through the, the mother's family there were business connections. Um, London was the global capital of, uh, of the of the world economy at the time there were all kinds of possibilities there and they had family connections and this is something that, that, that maintained, that, that stayed with Marconi throughout his life the importance of the support of his family and a close network of associates so Marconi is 22 years old, his mother takes him to England and um, um, and they, where they have uh, she has a nephew, Marconi's cousin, the man by the name of Henry Jamison Davis, also from the Jamison family, um, who is um, an engineer working in the financial city of London, well connected. he um, He puts together a group of what we would call today venture capitalists small investors, they put together uh, seven or nine of them put together a sum of um, 100,000 British pounds, which is a substantial um, sum of money at the time. I mean, it's um, uh, today it would be uh, the order of seven or eight million dollars taking into account the difference between the value of money at the time and, uh, and our time today. And they create a company and the company has one asset, Marconi's patent, because the, f- the first thing that they that they do when Marconi and his mother arrive in England is they patent his um, invention, and uh, so that it can't be taken, copied, used by anybody else. They create the company. Marconi sells the patent to the company, and the company proceeds to. Um, Look for outlets for it worldwide. They begin by actually patenting it um, wherever wherever it's possible to do that.
0: One of the things that really stands out in in, in, in that uh, part of your account is how quickly people uh, take to Marconi's invention. And the, and and for me, there there, there are examples uh, when, when you look at you know technological history where. Uh, from this era, where there would be a proposal for something, uh, such as uh, the the early air uh, the Wright brothers' airplanes, or, and even after, and this inhibited Wright brothers, where there would be an invention and people would be like, "Well, been there, done that," or even when it was demonstrated, they'd be skeptical or they would have some sort of alternate idea. Whereas with Marconi, you, you describe how people just instantly seemed to grasp how uh, how revolutionary what he had done was, how how successful he had been. And it seems that he doesn't have as much of a threshold to go from winning acceptance of this and beginning the process of developing the Marconi network.
1: That's right, um, because what he was doing—it it, it sparked the imagination. It was—it was the kind of thing. It was the stuff that that early science fiction was made was was made of. Because you could you could if you let your imagination go and and people actually tried to to get marconi to commit himself to this idea well what about outer space what about sending messages to 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 other planets what about mental telepathy i mean there were there there were all of these um ideas that began that were already that were already circulating Mm -hmm. in popular culture that that um uh, um Grafted on to what Marconi was doing, and he would be—he would actually be asked by serious journalists, you know, Mister Marconi, do you, you know, do you think you can, you'll be able to communicate with Mars one day? Yes. And he would say, "I don't see why not." <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, so then the headlines would be, "Marconi says, you know, we'll soon be communicating with Mars." Yes. Um, and,
0: and that's one of the things I, I, but, I liked about, it, though, is, is that it really—I mean—nowadays we can look back upon that and say. Uh, as you, know, you point out, uh, another one was the idea of, of, of contacting the dead using radio. And nowadays we look back upon that and scoff and, and roll our eyes and say how utterly ridiculous they were. But at the time, you know, when, it, when, it, when radio was brand new, it seemed like anything was possible. The very idea of wireless communication seemed to be no less uh, n- no less uh, magical than this idea that maybe we could use it, say, to uh, transmit Brainwaves, you know, to each other, or reach out to our dearly departed and contact them.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, certainly in in you know in the popular imagination. I mean, if you were, I mean, this is one of the one of the. Both one of the reasons, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the, the the press was so fascinated by Marconi was because there already were these these other ideas um, uh, circulating in groups. Um, you know, there was something uh, called the Society for Psychical Research, which was started in England and then and, and already and also had followings um, in the United States, which was which was taken very very seriously and was and and basically it was an attempt. To explain phenomena that didn't seem to have any kind of scientific basis, and 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 Marconi's wireless was was seen as this sort of thing. Um, again, as I mentioned as I mentioned earlier, uh, academic physics um, thought it had an explanation for um, for um, wireless communication and thought that it would be that wireless communication would be very uh, very limited, um, but. Uh, uh, alongside that um, it was just it just seemed to be inexplicable i mean when people and marconi used to demonstrate he would he used to hold he used to hold public demonstrations he would he would never do that until he was absolutely sure that it would be successful in other words once he had as he progressed you know once he was able to not only communicate across a room but across um, a mile or two miles, or eventually, you know, when he um, when he sent when he when he sent the first message, the first message across the English Channel, he had journalists present. But he knew that it, he was going to be able to do it because he had tested it, uh, pre-tested it before. So there there were um, there were witnesses to what he was doing, and yet um, there was no apparent explanation and in fact even in interviews when Marconi was asked how do you do this you know he would sometimes say well i don't quite know how i do it but i know that i can do it and i'm doing it <laughs> and, and 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 they would they would see that and um when he actually it was it was when when he managed to uh, send a signal across the english channel that he set himself the goal of crossing the atlantic with a wireless with a wireless signal
0: the big and, thing and of
1: course you know the the english the you know the english channel is was about 40 miles and the atlantic was about 2000 miles and yet you know marconi he intuitively understood that the properties of the airwaves would be basically um the same in the two cases now you know we kind of we have to get into a bit of a technical discussion here because the um, the physicists who had been working on uh, hertzian waves maintained that the um, the waves went out into space and then and and therefore yes okay you might be able to at first they, they wouldn't even believe that you could go across the english channel but having done that they say okay yes but you you'll never go across the atlantic because the, the waves are going to go out into space and marconi believed that they would follow the curvature of the earth what actually happened was, unbeknownst to Marconi, he unwittingly discovered what we now call the ionosphere. <laughs> when he actually <laughs> sent his signal out into space, it did go out into space, but it bounced back. And and so um, after having built a huge, very powerful transmitter um, in Cornwall on the west coast of England, um, he, he went across to Newfoundland, um, which was... Um, uh, Than a British colony. Newfoundland was not yet part of Canada. It was a separate British colony, but it was the closest land point on the American side. So it was the the distance between Newfoundland and the west of England was was significantly shorter than the distance, let's say, uh, to uh, Boston or New York. Um, Marconi managed to do that. He managed to Uh, he managed to send a signal from the west coast of England it was simply three dots the letter S in Morse code three dots and he repeated it he repeated it uh, three or four times uh, before he was sufficiently um, confident that uh, that this was now something that would be he would be able to uh, to repeat and he announced publicly uh, that um, that he had done this and there was the, 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 the response to this, um, if you can imagine, I mean, he was now 27 years old. He'd been a public figure and and uh, quite a media celebrity for about five years by then. I mean, the, the response was, was just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, um, newspapers were referring to him as the man of the century. Uh, the, the New York Times waxed eloquently in editorials about the the new era that had been ushered in thanks to the brilliant, uh, successful work of Mr. Marconi and so on and so forth. Um,
0: and, and that actually and, uh, it, it gets though, to to another very interesting part of of Marconi that you that you described. He was very savvy about public relations, and he and, yes. and as you point out with the, with the testing, making sure it worked because he knew he, he understood the impact of a public demonstration that would end in failure. He always seemed to know how to relate to the press and to uh, use them in a way to promote his invention. And, 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 and sometimes they were even more enthusiastic about him and his invention than even he was.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, he from, from the very beginning, he used uh, the press very, very astutely, and and they and they took to him it must be said i mean he was he was very he was a very popular figure um, um uh, the, the, the 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 press just i mean he had the widest touch as far as that went i mean he whatever he, what he would do would would get um, um wide attention and he, personally he found it um annoying even irritating at times because he he just basically had he, he He lost any capacity to have um, a private life, if you will. Um, um, But he was able to um, to capitalize on it, and he was really, um, you know, he he was his company's greatest asset, and he became. A brand, Um, you know. Initially, in 1897, the the company was called the Wireless uh, uh, Telegraph and Signal Company, and in 1900 they rebranded it as Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company. Which is what Marconi wanted.
0: He wanted his name in the title at the start.
1: Yeah, well, he he was he was ambivalent about it. I mean, he he kind of he went along with uh, his father. Actually, pressed him to to include his to, to have his name put in the title. But when the original investors, um, you know, wanted a more neutral, descriptive a uh, title, he 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 went along. But by by 1900, they realized the the the, the power of the brand, and and and, and after that, I mean. You know, every one of the subsidiaries in the United States it was the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America. In Canada, it became the Canadian Marconi Company, and so on and so forth. And there were, you know, Marconi companies all the all, all over the place, all kinds of subsidiaries, except for and, Germany. Um,
0: and that's where the story gets ex- complicated.
1: Yes, exactly. Except for Germany, um, and um, the because the 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 German Emperor was determined that a British company would not have a global monopoly on wireless communication um, because of course Germany and Britain were the great rivals we're talking about roughly 1903 now um, and um, the British had become dominant in um, in transatlantic cable communication by the underground the underwater uh, the underwater cables and now they were becoming dominant thanks to um, the Marconi company um, in in wireless as well although you know it must be said that um, let's say Marconi's was no more a British company necessarily than say Microsoft is an American company I mean it was it was based there and that was tremendously important but it wasn't Organically tied to the government, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a government corporation. It was. Uh, it was a, you know, a, a, a privately owned uh, capitalist enterprise operating in, uh, in, in 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 the context of uh, um, of a great power. So the the, the, the Germans set up. A rival company called Telefunken, it, it was uh, operated by um, German scientists and, and and using German capital and German um, uh, industrial expertise, uh, but they were unable to break the the Marconi um, uh, the Marconi patents um, anywhere else. You know, I mean, Marconi had just been he had been you know just enough ahead of them it was like if you can imagine a a long distance uh, or if you can imagine a a sprinter you know usain bolt crosses the line he's maybe 0.1 seconds ahead of (laughs) you know of the next one but that's enough he's the champion and that's and that's that's what it was i mean so so they they just couldn't get in they couldn't get into the market because marconi was so uh, predominant um and then i mean this is where the story becomes interesting in terms of um global politics and and also um, media and communication regulation i mean the, the 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 germans call an international conference in berlin in 1903 and they invite the great powers of the day and they say you know there is this new global resource the airwaves that um, uh, that are that have to be available to anybody it doesn 't make any sense that that someone should be able to patent the use of the airwaves and they are actually able to get you know first the uh, the Americans and and then the French and eventually even the British come along uh, with this idea and and that really is um, uh, the the end of of Marconi's hopes to to have a global monopoly on wireless i mean his company continues to be uh, predominant at least until the end of the uh, at least until the end of the uh, the first world war and then um, you know a number of other factors come into play um, notably that after the, after the first world war uh, the US government decides that um, they no longer want to have U.S. communication controlled by a British company and they force Marconi to sell his assets to General Electric uh, which results in the creation of RCA, the Radio Corporation of America and that whole, you know, American history of, um, of communication. So Um, It's it's a fascinating business and corporate history that gets tied up in uh, global politics in the period leading up to and immediately following the First World War. And um, by the 1920s, the Marconi Company is essentially one of four global corporations that Basically, divide the world in, you know, in, in terms of global communication, along with RCA, the German Telefunken, and an um, uh, uh, equivalent French um, corporation. Um, but to, to, if, if I can just backtrack for a moment and get, get back to, um, you know, the fascinating figure, the biographical figure of Marconi um, himself. Um, you know, he, he he continued during this whole period to. Be at the center of uh, global events. I mean, if you just if you take the the, the Titanic disaster, for example, um, it, you know, it's fair to say it, uh, that. Um, the reason that more than a little over 700 people survived the sinking of the Titanic was because it was equipped with a Marconi wireless transmitter that was able to get off an SOS signal that was that was picked up um, by neighboring vessels, and you know, and one ship was able to get there in time to uh, to rescue those people uh, out of the water. Well, you Marconi that, happened to be yeah, sorry.
0: Yeah, sorry. You're, you're about to say about how Mar- Mar- about Marconi. About how yes. he was almost so, a passenger.
1: Oh well, um, Marconi actually, uh, Marconi had been invited to sail on the on the on the Titanic um, with uh, with his wife, but he um, he had to be in the U.S. a bit earlier, so he went on an on an um, on an earlier ship, and actually his his. His wife was going to follow on the Titanic, but then um, their um, infant child took sick, and she decided to cancel the trip. So, <laughs> so um, um, Marconi's wife Beatrice and their oldest daughter actually they actually watched the Titanic sail by their home on the south coast of England and waved to it. It's a very rather eerie um, thought, <laughs> if you will. But Mark, so Mar- Marconi was Marconi. Uh, was in New York when when the Titanic went down and 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 he he was um uh again you know he was lionized by the press it was it was I mean, Mar- Marconi he was considered the personally responsible for the fact that, that 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 those lives had been saved and 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 you know as he was he I mean uh, people were worshiping him at the time um and, and um, there's actually a very interesting newsreel um, footage. If you if you if you Google um, Titanic newsreel, you'll get it, you, you get a little clip where you can actually recognize. You can see Marconi uh, down at the dock uh, greeting the Titanic as it arrives with the survivors. Um, and. Um, uh, you know, he had a couple of speeches that had been previously scheduled in New York City, and they were just—they were just besieged by people. I mean, it, it, you know, he—he was—he was really considered, you know, a personal savior at that at that point in time. I mean, this was really the height of his of his fame and uh, and, and notoriety, if you will. Um, at the same time, I mean. It was just Almost at exactly the same time, there was a, a tremendous uh, scandal taking place in in, um, in Britain that came to be known as the Marconi scandal because it was discovered that um, a number of uh, government ministers uh, had been very naively really um, speculating in uh, in American Marconi shares. You know, these are British ministers speculating in American shares of the American Marconi company because of some um, um, privileged information. Uh, the, the Mar- Marconi's, um, the, the, the day-to-day manager of Marconi's company, a man by the name of Godfrey Isaacs, was the Brother of the Attorney General of uh, uh, of England at the time, Sir Rufus Isaacs, and when he he came back, he he, he returned from from um, from the U.S. and uh, you know and told his brother, you should buy Marconi shares because this is coming and this is and this is happening and so on. Well, at the same time, of course, you know the Marconi company in Britain was a client, was doing business with the government, and you know in those days there there, there weren't any kind of rules written down to, you know, prohibit uh, this this kind of uh, dealing, but the press got onto it and uh, it came to be known as the Marconi scandal. And Marconi was always personally uh, he, he 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 was mortified by by having his name uh, associated with a scandal of this of this sort because, um, as he always maintained. He himself had had nothing to do with it. This was another thing about Marconi. He was he was Mister Teflon. He was able to. He wasn't involved in the speculation of shares, uh, and 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 it was unfair that his that his name, because it was the name of the company, um, would be uh, would be tainted in this in, in this way. So I mean, he was he really he literally he was literally a household word in in. Um, um, in at least four countries, in in, in in Britain, the U.S., Canada, and Italy. Certainly, I mean, you know, Marconi, uh, a, a, a schoolchild of 12 years old, knew who Marconi was, and um, um, you know, the wireless wireless telegrams were called Marconigrams. Um, the wireless the um, uh, the um, the wireless transmitters that I referred to on the Titanic and other ships were called Marconi transmitters. The the, the people who operated them were called Marconi men, and uh, you know, there was and Marconi had his own, he had uh, his own publishing company that that, that published you know magazines uh, with names like uh, the Marconi Graph and so on, um, and um, so it, it was a, he was he he was a personal a personal brand,
0: and that's something um, that. <clears throat> excuse me and that's something that the uh that the uh that Benito mussolini uh seeks to benefit from in the 1920s
1: yes and um and i was you, you I, you've, you've anticipated me very well because i was just <laughs> coming to that <laughs>
0: so we're we're
1: up to you know we're up to the the, the end of the first world war now and um, <coughs> marconi Marconi has been involved um um in uh, he, he 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 joined he offered his services to uh, the italian army uh, during during the war when when italy entered the war in 1915 on the allied side and um, at the end of the war um, italy felt that it was entitled to some of the spoils of coming from the dismantling of the um, the german and the austrian and the Ottoman empires, particularly Austrian, in the case of Italy, because there were there were some disputed um, there were some disputed territories between Italy and Austria that went back disputes going back a very long time. But when um, when the, in when the Paris Conference met uh, after the, the end of the war in 1919, um, and uh, the British and the French uh, were the dominant. Uh, Players there, along with of course um, Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, who had his own uh, vision for uh, the post war global order and and Italy was pretty much um, cut out i mean they were they were you know to the extent that there were four if you were to think that there were four victorious powers, Italy was maybe the fourth, but when it actually came to Making the big decisions, um, they were cut out. And Marconi actually was an Italian delegate to the Paris Conference, and he met privately with um, with Wilson, who uh, he who he had met he had met before in the United States. I mean, Marconi traveled; he was he was he was a global figure. But the. Um, the conference maintained uh, the position without going into all the details which 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 basically um, did not satisfy um, the italians and this was one of the one of the um, b- uh, basic uh, points that uh, led to the rise of Mussolini and uh, his embryonic fascist party was the the um the idea of restoring Italian grandeur and particularly and making good on Italy's post-war claims. And, you know, um, you know Mar- the, the original followers of Mussolini were essentially um, war veterans from the first war returning back. So this was a very powerful idea. And it was an idea that resonated with Marconi um, through his own experience. I mean, Marconi was an Italian patriot. And, um, you know, even though he had, uh, lived most of his adult life based in, in, in the UK. And, um, so when, when, when Mussolini came to power in 1922 and, um, uh, you know it's it, it it's easy from our vantage point to say uh yes but he was it was the fascist party it was the original fascist party i mean mussolini never there there had, there had never been anything you know of that of that name before um and uh marconi and of course he was not al- alone in this he, even there were, there were many people of his of his social class and his and and, and position who um who supported mussolini and um but there were few italians very few italians who had the kind of international visibility that marconi did at that time and mussolini realized that he could that he could capitalize on this i mean marconi was much better known than mussolini and um so um mussolini made marconi the head of his national research council he made him the head of the new italian academy that he created Um, he made him a member of his grand council of fascism which was kind of a which a, a kind of shadow uh, government cabinet which was which, which was there to uh, advise him on high policy issues and um and marconi embraced this 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 new politics um and uh, through the 20s and and 30s he was a a very vocal and prominent public supporter of mussolini and his policies on on the world stage um of course he always thought that he was having some influence behind the scenes and in some cases he he probably did Um, but i think on balance my own assessment of this is that um, he was rather naive I think he was um, he was used by Mussolini um, of course in a in a business sense, Marconi used Mussolini because there was there was a trade-off going on there I mean Marconi got certain favors uh, for uh, his his company's activities certainly in Italy and so on um, but in the broader political sense, I think it was. I think it was something that, towards the end of his life, he even it, mm, began to reflect on. You know, there was we we don't really know uh, what would have happened had he lived, had Marconi lived, just another two or three years. You know, he Marconi died in 1937, um, less than a year after Mussolini signed his the, the pact with uh, with Hitler. Um, Marconi would have been, he would have been terribly conflicted. Um, had he seen Italy go to war with England? I mean, and, and, and we just don't know how he would have reacted to that. Um, his, uh, his family, um, always maintained that he, he, he would have left. He would, he, he, that he, that, that, uh, but we don't know this. I mean, we simply, you know, it's an, it's an unanswerable question. What would Marconi have done? Because he died in July, 1937 and, and he was in death treated like a hero of fascism. And, um, and you know even to, to, he he continued to be a um dominant and an enigmatic political figure for years after 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 he died you know when 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 marconi died in 1937 the largest wreath at his funeral was sent by adolf hitler Marconi had never met Hitler. There, it is said that, Mar- that, Mar- that, that Marconi uh, would have refused to meet to meet Hitler. <laughs> again, this is something that we that uh, that we don't know. And yet, the other side of that coin is that in 1944, when um, after the fall of Fascist Italy, um, you know, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, in his famous uh, radio speech on uh, uh, on the fall of Rome. Um, referred to the, the the four glorious sons of the Italian people: uh, Michelangelo, Dante, Galileo, and Marconi. So, where does that leave us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something again that, um, as a biographer, I wish I had answers to all these <laughs> questions. But there are there are some things, and I and I really, you know, I struggled to look for these answers. I wanted to be able to 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 understand what was it, I think I did understand what it was that attracted Marconi to fascism. I mean, it was this this lifelong um, adherence to power. He always put himself next to um, whoever was in political power, and he was quite ecumenical about this. You know, I mean, in Britain, I mean, he even he worked with the first Labour government in the the nineteen twenties so it 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 was the idea of political power and, the, and, and and the idea that um he had to have governments on his side in order to continue developing and perfecting um his system um and it was this profound sense of um, uh, that that that, that Italy was not being given its proper treatment on the um, on on the world stage. I mean, that's what attracted him um, to Mussolini. But then I I, I also try to understand why he stayed. You know, because there were others who didn't as as things became more and more difficult in the 1930s. Um, um, you know marconi had he had the stature he could have he could have stood up to Mussolini he could have left he could have gone anywhere i mean there, there, he was um and and yet he chose to to remain and to to serve the uh, the regime until the day he died um, what did he really believe what did he really think he was um he was going to achieve um, you know there is it it it, it, it was Really impossible, you know, as hard as I tried, I could not nail that down, so it just it just remains
0: an enigma yeah some things will always remain a mystery in that respect so. well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now
1: right now, I'm working on trying to get the word out about this book. I mean I have to <laughs> say i'm not'm I'm, I'm, I'm really um, um, i, I I have some ideas of uh, of an next project, but I'm I'm really, you know, I I made the last changes to the book in early May. Um, it was something that I worked on it, it, just about every in every available moment for a period of six years. Um, I've accepted. The thankless task of being department chair <laughs> in my de- in my department at McGill, so that will keep me busy, um, and uh, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just have to see. But for but 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 for now, I just you know I'm very happy to be doing um, you, know, you know the kind of thing that we that we've done here today, and I just I just hope uh, you know to get feedback on this book.
0: I, I do too, because it really is an excellent comprehensive study not just of the man but of his business and and in the context of the times in which he lived well that's
1: that's uh, yeah that's that's what that's what i tried to do i mean it it is it's definitely a biography but but the biography is also the pretext for looking at the times and and the importance of that time um uh, for the way we live today because we really are you know, living in the wake of uh, you know of that period of, of, of early twentieth century modernity and all the changes that were uh, um, that were taking place, uh, that were beginning to take place, we're we're living in the wake of that today.
0: And I think it's one of the things that made makes him such a modern figure in your book. He the, the degree to which he is a uh, a, a you know a, a master of the social media of his day, the the degree to which he was this pioneering. Uh, Technology uh, capitalist and and the degree to which his technologies did change his world in, in very fundamental ways.
1: Absolutely, and and I think you know it's also um, fair to say that 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 we're living in in the world that he envisioned and mm-hmm. created.
0: Well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Okay, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.